All right. How, you, too, can pretend to know Angular 2. <laughs> In 10 easy steps. steps. That's right. One, listen to our show. <laughs> Two, say these words over and over again. Repeat yes. after me. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $1,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the JavaScript Gabber link, you'll get a $2,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Adventures in Angular. Ready to master Angular? Oasis Digital offers Angular Bootcamp, a three-day in-person workshop class for individuals or teams. Bring us to your site or send developers to our classes in St. Louis or San Francisco, angularbootcamp.com. This episode is sponsored by Telerik, the makers of Kendo UI. Kendo UI integrates seamlessly with both AngularJS 1.x and 2.0. It provides everything you need to integrate with AngularJS out of the box, bindings, component configuration directives, template directives, form validation event handlers, and much more. And yet, Kendo UI tooling does not depend on AngularJS, so if you want to use it with Angular or not, that's totally up to you. You can check it out at kendoui.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 97 of the Adventures in Angular show. This week on our panel, we have Ward Bell. Hi, everyone. Joe Eames. Hey, everybody. Lucas Rubelke. Yo. John Papa. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. It's a little ways out, but start looking forward to Angular Remote Comp. We have a special guest this week, and that's Pascal Precht. Hello. We haven't had you on for a little while, Pascal. Do you want to introduce yourself? Oh, yeah, sure. So my name is Pascal. I'm from Hanover, Germany. I'm a software engineer and trainer, and I like to do Angular. You're also a Git trainer, too, right? So I also do Git. Yeah, that's that's correct, but more Angular. <laughs> I've learned almost most of the Git that I needed. I learned from you. I'll just say that. I'm happy to hear that. Well, you wouldn't be so happy if you realized how terrible I am at Git, but that's <laughs> just kidding. Okay, so you're based in Germany, right? That's true. But you and your partner, Christoph. Christoph, Christoph Burkdorf. He's awesome. He's my, actually, so today, no, like this week, I, I learned a new word. It's called protege. And I think I'm Christoph's protege. Uh, does that make sense? It does. And the two of you are in the workshop business, right? That's right. Right. Yeah. And uh, you're hopping, hopscotching around Europe, mostly uh, giving classes? Right. So we're, or- we're- Right. So we're basically we're doing like in-house trainings and public trainings and we basically do it like all around the globe. So we're mainly doing it in Europe. We also do it in the US, but mainly in Europe currently. And so so, yeah, we we like to travel. So we uh, we travel around. We visit cities and do our trainings there, meet great people, work with them. And yeah, that's what we do. So I got a question for you. Doing Angular in Germany, is it a lot more efficient there? Efficient in in what sense? It's a joke. Oh. Nobody laughed. <laughs> Come on. It was just like one of those I don't believe it kind of jokes. <laughs> I can't. 
Yes. So actually, so, German but, cars are known for being very efficient. <laughs> so and well engineered. Is is Angular better engineered in Germany? Yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure. Like so that's the engineering also, is better. That's also why all the tests are green when you when you write Angular uh, in <laughs> German. <laughs> well, let, let's let's redo the question. Joe, ask the question again. This time we'll laugh. <laughs> oh gosh. Here's this is my here's a pity laugh. It's only a dollar. You can have a pity laugh for a buck. Yeah, exactly. Getting back on track. Yeah, uh, I want to talk about uh, their uh, ng-conf, them and ng-conf. Oh, go for it. You guys were at ng-conf. You did a bunch of stuff there, right? Can you, can you talk about that? Uh, yeah, sure. So at ng-con, we've done a full-day training on Angular 2. So um, we basically kind of we created an Angular 2 application uh, with a group of people that kind of demonstrates what is needed to build like a basic application, like what you need to actually get started to have something that works. And then from there, you can like move on and, you know, extend that application. We've used some tools for that. Like there's the Angular CLI tool, for example, that that is kind of it's pretty much a first class citizen in our training material. So everyone learned how to use the Angular CLI, which is pretty cool because it takes away all the hassle of, you know, setting up a new project. Because in the current world of JavaScript and tooling, you have to learn tons of stuff to actually get started, which is quite cumbersome. I'm actually, I haven't even like used Webpack myself. You know, I never set it up myself. So I'm super happy that there's something like Angular CLI that also, you know, handles things like System.js and, you know, the whole modulating thing and, you know, transpiling TypeScript code and um, so we did that, and then we've done a one-hour, was a kind of talk, but at the same time also kind of showcase how to upgrade an Angular 1 application to Angular 2. So uh, there's this module out there called ng-upgrade, and it provides APIs to upgrade an Angular 1 application to Angular 2. It has like APIs to upgrade and downgrade uh, components and you know services and providers and that kind of stuff and so what we did was we basically we took the application that we've created in the angular 2 training we had this exact same application built in angular 1 and then we used ng upgrade to you know demonstrate how we can upgrade that application to angular 2 actually there's a repository out there on github which has all the steps in a nice commit history so you can actually go there and then take a look at at it and you know see how that worked that's what we did yeah let's put that in the show notes really- so you're known for these wonderful little tip posts on your blog. And that got us to thinking that it would be great to pick your brain on the kinds of tips that you think Angular 2 developers should know about. And I assume you're game for that. Let's pick one. Can you talk to us a little bit about dependency injection, in particular, that peculiar decorator called that injectable? (laughs) Of course, yeah. So that injectable is a funny thing. Like if you go to angular.io, if you take a look at the um, official documentation, which everyone out there definitely should do because there's like tons of good material there to learn Angular too. Um, You'll see that in many examples where you have like service code, you will see that the service class has an at injectable decorator. And you will see it pretty much on every service class. So that kind of brings up the feeling that whenever we create a service in Angular 2 that we want to inject somewhere, we need to add this at injectable decorator. And in fact, we also like to promote that as a best practice to add the at injectable decorator to every service that we create 
because it turns out that actually it's not needed in every case. It's really there are some cases where where it's required to add this decorator, but it's not a big deal if we add it on every service class. And I can explain real quick what it's all about. So the thing is that when we write TypeScript, we have these decorators as a language feature available, and these decorators are basically used to create metadata on our code. So it's basically information that Angular 2 uses to do some certain things. And dependency injection is like one of these parts of Angular 2 that take advantage of metadata. So whenever we use, for example, like type annotations and our constructors to inject stuff, that's like also metadata that the DI system needs to find out what to actually inject. And so the problem with simple service classes is that if you have like a class and it doesn't have any decorators on it and it also doesn't have any dependencies, then it's it's all right, right? You can just simply create an object of that class, you can inject it and you're ready to go. But as soon as your service has its own dependencies, let's say you have a data service and it asks for an instance of something of type HTTP, then at that particular point, we need to make sure that TypeScript actually generates metadata for that class. And there's one mechanism that generates metadata in TypeScript, and that is a decorator. So first of all, there is a configuration option. I think it's called emits uh, metadata or something. That needs to be set to true to tell TypeScript, hey, please generate metadata in general if you need to. And the question is, when do we have the case that TypeScript generates metadata? And that is only when there is a decorator on a class. So if there's no decorator on a class, then there is no metadata generated for that class, which means if you have a dependency defined in your data service and that class doesn't have a decorator, then there's no metadata generated. And that means at runtime, the DI system doesn't know what it needs to inject. And so, and that's why you want to add some sort of decorator. You can basically add any decorator, but it happens that there is already a decorator flying around called injectable. And that decorator is part of Angular 2 because it's actually required in Dart. And so we basically just use that decorator as it's already there to uh, yeah, take advantage of that. So it's just and, a marker. It's just a marker that triggers the uh, TypeScript compiler to emit the uh, metadata. Is that the idea? That's correct. And so we don't have to do this when we create components. Like you might wonder, why don't we have to do this when we create a component class? Because there we inject stuff too, right? Well, the right. thing is that a component already has a decorator, the, the add component decorator. So there is already a decorator. That's why you will never run into this when you create a component. Whereas a service can be just a simple class, right? It, it doesn't need a decorator to be a class. Okay, so let me see if I got this. So if I like, I want to have a component, uh, let's say it's a, a hero list component that's going to display a list of heroes. And in order to do that, it needs a hero service. I don't need to add add injectable on there because I already did what with my hero yeah. list component? Well, because in order to make it an actual component, you add the add component decorator to your component class. Ah, I see. So that decorator or any decorator will do the job? Correct. Any decorator will tell TypeScript, hey, please generate metadata for this class. So you could actually, like technically, you can actually go ahead and create some custom decorator. You can call it foo, and then you put that add foo decorator on your service class, and that would work the same way. 
You just don't want to do it because there is already a decorator that you can like kind of hijack for that use case. But that on the makes... other hand, uh, as I sorry, as I mentioned earlier, it's actually like considered a best practice to just simply always add the add injectable decorator to a service class because it's a kind of it's a positive negative, right? Like it will generate the metadata for that class even though if it's not needed, but you don't have code that breaks. Well, and I don't want to sit around and say, do I need it this time? Do I not need it the next time? Hey, if I just throw it on there, done, and I can stop thinking about it. Correct. And in fact, Angular CLI does that also by default. So whenever you scaffold an application in Angular CLI, and when you create a service using, using uh, you know, you have, you have a generator command for that. And so you, in your command line, you say ng generate service, and then you give it a service name. What Angular CLI does, it creates a service for you. It creates a spec file for you, so you don't have to set up all the testing environment. And the class itself, like the service class that is generated, already has the uh, at injectable decorator on it. That's neat. So let me ask you about another set of things, the mystery decorators. This sort of a general problem of like, you know, I got two components or a component and a directive, and I want them to... I want to know how they interact with each other and like if I've got a component and it's got components inside it, how do I, how does that outer component know about the inner components? And there seem to be a whole bunch of decorators dedicated to that, but uh, can you tell our people about that? Yeah, sure. So basically, I think if I'm getting you right, you're basically talking about directive or component communication, right? Yeah. And, like and how, how this, do you how do you access like instances of for example child components and a parent component or maybe even the other way around? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I and I keep seeing these these decorators floating around that seem to have something to do with it. But maybe you can tell us about them. Yeah. So th basically, there are like three different ways um, to do that. So in, in in like two different directions. So you have one, this one use case where you might want to get an instance of a parent component in a child component. So if you think, for example, if you think about a tabs component, right? So you have a tabs component to generate like a tab group. And inside that tabs component, you have many tab components. Mm. So in, in order to like create this tabs group, you want the tabs component to generate a list of tabs. And in mm. order to make that possible, you somehow need to make sure that this tabs component knows about its child components. And uh, so one way to do it is basically to like tell the child component, the tab component, hey, um, get an instance of your parent tabs component and then add yourself to that tabs list. So that's basically a child component requesting a parent component. And you can simply do that by dependency injection. That's a nice thing. Like the dependency injection system in Angular 2 is kind of, it kind of unifies the different use cases and implementations that we have had in Angular 1 where you would have like dependency injection for services and filters and directives and stuff. And then you have in directive objects, you have this link function where you can access parent controllers. And in Angular 2, you simply have this one single DI mechanism for that. So you can simply ask for a parent component, you know, using uh, type annotations like the way you're used to it, and you will just get an instance of your parent component. That's like one way. But doing that, is basically means that the child component, the tab component, is now actually coupled to the tabs component. In this particular case, it might even make sense because you probably don't even want to use the tab component alone, but there might be use cases where you say, I actually don't want my child component know about the parent component at all. But still, there needs to be like some sort of connection. Like somehow, the parent component needs to deal with the child components. And when you when you're in this case, actually, you can also do that with this tabs example. 
you have a couple of decorators that you can use to get hold of your child components. So there's four decorators that you can use for that. Like there's uh, the view child decorator, there is the view children decorator, and then there's the content child decorator and the content children decorator. So we have like singular and plural. And so basically what they do is they allow you to basically say, hey, like I have my tabs component and I want to get all of the children tab components that are in my content. And the content is basically the HTML that is inside the components tag. So it's not the view of the component, like not the template of the component. It's the HTML that is basically between the uh, tags of that component. So then we, what we could do is we could basically use the add content children decorator. We give it the tab component type that we have because we created a component for it. And it will automatically, asynchronously, basically get a list of all the available child components that we requested. And the cool thing about that is, is that is, it is all based on observables. So you basically get a stream of changes that are happening to a query list, a so-called query list. So what you get from content children decorator is a query list that gets a stream of children components. So that's a pretty cool way to actually get hold of child components without the child component knowing about a parent component. And you basically, you can do the exact same thing if you want to address child components in a component's view. So if you have like a template of a component and you want to well, access- let's, hold, let's hold hold a second there, Pascal, because I want to oh, make sure sorry. we can draw draw the picture of, of what you were doing. So let okay. me let me see if I got this right. So if I have a tab container that holds tabs, that's kind of an example. So you're you're saying that I might so I, I and let's suppose that there was a tag we created an element called tab container. Then I would kind of go tab container. Then I would have a bunch of these tab or tab panes inside it. And then I would have a closing tab that said tab container. So the component that's behind the tab container, that's the thing that's going to get chill content children, right? Correct. If you and, want all to those get and all those little tab elements that I put in the middle that represented the first, second, and third tab, that's the content? Right. That's what you get when you ask for the content children. Got it. Right. Angular 1 people might have known that as transclusion, wouldn't they? Mm, not exactly. Because Did I just like blow the whole thing and blow? <laughs> <laughs> so forget about transclusion. You really you take like everything and put it somewhere in the view of a component. Whereas with content children, you don't put anything into the view yet if you don't want to. So it's actually a different mechanism. In Angular 2, that's content projection, and that would work pretty much the same way. Um, but that's a different thing. And then, so yeah, that's that's content children or content child, depending on what you want to do. But then if you... And, and that has to be observable, right? Because tabs... So I could have three are, in the middle? Yeah. Okay, so that's why you need to listen to this for changes to that, because that could be happening outside. Uh, you Correct, know. yeah. Right. Or you can even like, like when you, yeah, you might even generate those child components dynamically using ng4 or whatever. And then maybe those uh, components are created using like some asynchronous data call or whatever. So maybe the data that, that you use to create that these components is already asynchronous. So then mm. you need to have a way to asynchronously get hold of these components. Pascal, why would you want to get a hold of these components? I, I want to make sure we make that clear to folks. 
Well, so in, in the case of this tabs component specifically, like if you want to create like an actual list of tabs that you can click on, the tab container needs to know about all the available tabs in order to create that list, right? So you need a way to access these children. And that's why you would ask for the content children in that case. You mean like the labels on the tabs themselves might be controlled outside of them and they'd have to get the value or something like that? That might be an example? Well, so the, the general generation of that list. So, so basically what you generate, so you write your HTML, you have like the tabs container and the tabs tags. And what you actually what you want to generate is like a list, like an HTML list with all the tab labels and then like a, a diff container where the content is projected for each tab. So in order to create this list, like th this, this list is kind of dynamic. That's, you know, we put that together based on the available tab components. The tab container needs to know about its children. Otherwise, it cannot generate that list. So, yeah, that's why you want to use the content children decorator. It's really just a so, way to, like, access that data, like these components without the child component, component knowing about a parent. So in your scenario, are you generating the tabs from the tab container or are you accessing them? You're generating the tab group in the tab container based on the tab children. Well, I guess you could be, it could be either. The, the tab container might be responsible for populating them, or something outside uh, elsewhere could be responsible for generating them. The point is that the tab container needs to interact with the little tabs that are inside it, and you need a mechanism, it, it, and it, it needs a mechanism for getting a hold of those things and communicating to them, and that's what you're saying. Yeah. The, getting the content children lets you do. Yeah, that's at least what I'm trying to say, but probably I'm not really good at it. <laughs> you said we, we have to say things six different ways before any of us understand it. So there's content children and there's content child. Yes. So content child is, as you might guess, the, the singular version of it. So if you know that you're only interested in one component instance of something, then you can just use the content child. What if you don't know? Should you just use children and deal with it? That's a good question. I would probably, oh, that actually, I don't have an answer for that. <laughs> Oops. Sorry. Well, That's all right. Well, I, have a, I have an answer. When you say content child, you're going to get the first one if there's more than one. So they are, the equivalent is to query for the children and ask for the zeroth element. So I guess you have to know something about whether you're expecting a collection or not. But if you're only oh. interested in the first one, then go for it. So view, the content child and view child are simply, they're, they're sugar for saying, look at the look at the list and pick the first one. Then I so think that, it just, that makes me wonder, though. Could we not just use content children and always look at the array length and then see uh, and then use that? This is just a guess. Uh, I think this can have like a performance penalty. And also that might affect how the offline template compilation would work. I think it's better when we're... I think, you're, I think you're right. I remember a conversation where uh, the Angular team was talking about this. And WPF folks had a similar scenario where you have, huh. if you don't know if you have multiple children or one, you can actually have a performance impact if you just know, look, there's only one. Let me go get that one. And I think that's yeah. actually more performance. Well, I'm going but we're to guess, guessing. I'm we're guessing. guessing. The, I'm guessing <laughs> the opposite. But because you do get in a lifecycle hook event that tells you when it changes. It's so a challenge. challenge. We have to find uh, Yeah, we've got a challenge. We've got a code challenge. But as a practical matter, I either know expecting one or I'm expecting many. So I would write whichever seemed to fit my pattern, my expectation. 
Yeah, that makes sense. That's content. That's the stuff where you have an open and closed tag and you're interested in the stuff between the tags. What is the difference? To, that's the content stuff. What's the view channel? Yeah, so the, the view child and the view children is pretty much the same thing just for the components view. And the components view is basically the template that you define for your component. So instead of asking for components that are between the tags of your component, you're actually asking for something that is already in the template that is already there. Is that like when I do an NG4 of heroes, that kind of thing in my template? Correct. Like when you when you have like a like a list um, of heroes that you generate in your component, you can if for each iterator you would actually generate a component, you would be able to access this view components uh, using view children with the same mechanism, just that you're basically yeah you're you're asking the view and not the content. Yeah, that makes sense. So you've been exploring change detection in Angular oh, yeah, two. And change detection in Angular 2 is a lot different than it is in Angular 1. So, so maybe you could start with, like, what is change detection? And then what are we used to in Angular 1 and how is it different in Angular 2? And then what are the options available to us? Okay. Right, so that's going to be like a forty-five minutes talk. <laughs> no, I try to. I try to. Ready, go. So short. All right. So change detection in general is actually this simple idea of taking some sort of application state and then projecting that state to like a visual UI to the user. So that can be, for example, like a, like a simple website. You know, if you request a website and that website has some sort of data structures that it wants to represent at some point, and then you get like a response and then you see the data in some way. And then, but at some point, there might be some change on whatever, like you change some, uh, you have like a form or uh, let's say like you want to, you have like a UI with, you know, you, you see some data, you have like a UI and you want to click a button that changes that data. And like in a, in a normal HTTP based scenario you would you know send that form you would click that button and then the the server would like do something and then you get a new response with that change and so this is basically what it's all about like you want to you want to know when something has changed and then if you know what has changed you want to update the view and updating the view can be like a complex task depending on on what your view is all about in the web world or specifically in uh, Single-page applications, we have the DOM, right? Like the document object model that kind of represents what we have written in HTML. It represents our templates. And so the hard thing in the web world is basically that, you know, making changes to the DOM efficiently because DOM operations are pretty expensive by default. So what we want to do is when we build applications and there are changes happening, we want to kind of project these changes in the view again we want to keep these operations as like low as possible. So that's the general idea. And then there are like, you know, different ways to deal with that. Like React has like virtual DOM. I don't know what Ember does, but Angular has had this thing called like the digest cycle that kind of synchronizes the model with the view. And um, Angular 2 has basically an improved version of what Angular 1 has done. Um, also, actually, it's like a different mechanism. And so what Angular 2 does, so first of all, we, we need to find out when, when a change happens, like what does it mean? What is a change? So in a change in single page applications, it's basically everything that is like asynchronous. Like whenever we have like some asynchronous operation 
changes could happen, right? So if you have like, uh, if we think of this scenario that we'll, like, we, we like display a name and that name is actually part of our model and we click a button and let's say there's like a function, like an event handler applied to that button that says, hey, when you click that button, then we change this name. Basically what, happened is, what happens is like when this button is clicked, application state could have changed. In fact, in this particular case, it would. And so what we need is a mechanism that tells Angular, hey, look, there was a change, so please make sure that you update the view accordingly. And so first of all, to find out if there was a change or not, Angular uses um, this feature called zones, which is a language feature in Dart, and the Angular team kind of backported it to JavaScript, or actually the very the latest version of zone.js is the library that they use, um, is um, written in TypeScript. And so what zone.js uh, zone basically does is it's like a sort of execution context, so you can take your application code, whatever it is, you just take your code, you can run it in a zone, and because you're running it in a zone, you're able to hook into some certain events. Like a zone knows when it executes a task and also when it stops a task. And so what it allows you to do is basically to execute a hook whenever a task or a task uh, has finished. And so Angular basically listens for this zone, like the zone fires an event. It's also observable base. So it basically subscribes to an observable that says, hey, there's a task starting right now. And hey, this task is now finished. So this is your signal that you need to update the view because maybe something has changed. And so what Angular does, it subscribes to that event. Whenever it fires, it triggers change detection. And then this is the moment where change detection itself comes into play. So the mechanism of you know taking the application state and then representing that state in, in the view uh, in a very efficient way. And so the change detection Angular 2, without going into too much detail, there's this one key difference um, compared to Angular 1, is that it always runs from top to bottom. So in Angular 2, we have a component tree, and data always flows from top to bottom, right? So you have like data in a component, you pass it to a child component, that child component might also have children, so it passes data to these children, and so on and so forth. So data can only come from top to bottom. And so that's exactly the same way how the change detection mechanism works. So it, it runs always from top to bottom, and it's not a cycle anymore. So it's not that a model can update a model, or a directive can update a model, or a controller can update a model, so that you have like a cycle that is running over and over again until the model stabilizes. Um, in Angular 2, you only have events, um, like asynchronous operations that can trigger a change detection task. And so that's like the second thing that is different. There's no cycle. There's always just a single, like a single change detection task that is running. So it only runs once for every component. Although if you're in developer mode, it runs twice to actually make sure that you don't create any side effects, which is pretty cool. And so then, Pascal, let me, let me try yeah. to digest this for a second. Get it? Digest this. <laughs> Using an old Angular Watch it, John. Watch it. Ooh. <laughs> so I don't want to push too far, but we can take values from a component to the view and then from the view back to the component through one-way binding and then through event binding. Correct. Uh, in Angular 2. So we still get that two-way data binding. And as a general user, first of all, do I really have to know how change detection works? Do I have to play with zones? Do I have to make any settings or any changes, or does it just work for me? That should just work for you out of the box. So you don't really know, you don't really have to know about 
zones and how zones work in order to like build Angular 2 applications. But it's definitely helpful, especially if you want to improve cases where even the Angular 2 change detection might be slow. Um, so that's that's what I want to focus on. So I think I'm going to say 80% to start a number. 80% of the scenarios, I'm fine. I don't have to know about this. I can just use it. What are those edge cases where... When is it time to say, Pascal, uh-oh, I need to go pull up your blog post and how change detection works because I've got a performance issue? Yeah, so for example, if you have, say you have an application that is connected to a WebSocket server and it sends data to your application like many, many times a second, right? So that would mean like for every second you would get some WebSocket event and zones automatically trigger uh, change detection, because, you know, they inform Angular about that event. So that means every second, due to this infinite WebSocket connection that keeps firing events, every second there would be like a change detection task being executed. And that's probably something that you don't want. Maybe you just want to update your view only every five seconds or whatever, even though you get data every second. So in that case, you can actually control that flow and say, hey, I want to run this only every five seconds. I'm only interested in running change detection every five seconds. Or you can even disable change detection entirely and only, you know, reactivate it in some certain cases. So in, in these kind of cases, you want to do that. Wicked awesome. Would I, do that, I, would I do that with a zone, a special zone that you're talking about? Like, would yes, I run so that WebSocket in a separate zone and so that uh, Angular didn't hear it? What am I doing? Well, let me think about it for a second. So what you can do is, so there's like one way, like one thing you can do is like you can actually execute code outside Angular. So there's this API that says run outside Angular on the zones API. And so what it allows you to do is basically execute tasks, like execute code, even with asynchronous operations that will not inform Angular to run uh, the change detection. So... Uh, and then if you combine that with something like set interval or something, you can basically make sure that it's only checking every five seconds. That could, so, that could be huge if you had a WebSocket or something like that that was just firing stuff at you all the time that you couldn't eat fast enough. What if right. you don't have a WebSocket, though? I mean, I mean, WebSockets are awesome. Don't get me wrong. But let's say I'm just building an app that's got no WebSockets. Is there any reason for me to play with these settings uh, without WebSockets? Actually, I mean, why not? Like, I mean, I'm, I'm playing with stuff all the time. <laughs> so I would say that in general, Angular 2 is like pretty fast because it also it generates monomorphic code on the fly for you. So that is like super duper fast by default. So if you, it, it's, I think it's really hard to actually run into cases where this is not fast enough. But then if you really have like cases where Angular is not fast enough, then this is the moment where, where I would start you know, looking around what, what you can do, um, how you can improve the performance. Another thing you can do is actually reduce the amount of checks that Angular does. Like you can actually say, hey, look, I have this huge application, this big component tree, and I know that this subtree here will actually not change for whatever reason. And then you can tell Angular, please don't check this subtree here. So we'll skip the entire subtree, which then again is way faster than, you know, checking all components. That's awesome. And I'm going to put in the show notes here a couple of posts that you've written. One of them is the uh, Angular 2 change detection explained, where I think a lot of this stuff is uh, made relatively clear through examples. Specifically, you've got a setting here in the at component decorator for change detection property to be set to 
change detection strategy on push. Correct. So that, that's what it's for, right? So it, it basically it tells your component, hey, only check this component if the following rules are true. The first rule is any of the components' input properties have changed. So we know that data always flows from top to bottom. So if there, if you have a component that only depends on input properties, then you can actually say, hey, if nothing, like none of these properties change, then you also don't have to check this component here because, well, there is no change. There's no reason to check the rest of the, of the tree. And so Angular basically does a reference check. If you combine that with immutable data structures, you know when something has changed and when not. And you can let Angular know as well. Uh-oh. And did, you, did you just mention immutability in front of Ward? Is that a problem? <laughs> that is a big problem. <laughs> okay. You well, stand least... right on a landmine there, buddy. <laughs> but I mean, we've, tried, but his opinion, we've tried, but his opinion is completely immutable. But that's true. <laughs> oh, that is true. Oh. Absolutely true. So if but I, I think this is great. This, if I'm standing on this landmine right now, I will just stand right here. I do not move, but I keep talking. Is that all right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think your post, Pascal, you've written a lot of great posts. And I got to tell you, this is one of my favorite posts that I've bookmarked, the Change Detection Explained, because you do a Thanks good so job much. not just explaining how technically to do it, but you explain why the heck would I even care. And that is so rare in today's technology. And Thank you. I really appreciate it. Good job. All right. Well, I need to push us into picks because I've got other things going on this evening. Pascal, if people want to see what you're up to or follow up with you, follow you on Twitter, any of those things, uh, what are the best places to go to do that? Yeah, definitely on Twitter. Um, either You can either follow me, just at Pascal Precht, which is my name, or you can follow at ThoughtRam if you're interested in Angular 2 articles because we regularly publish articles and then tweet them. Uh, I think that's those are the best ways to to get in touch with me or to follow me in some way. But other than that, I'm not really interesting. So you probably want to follow other people. I was so tempted to say that I always thought it was though tram, but anyway, <laughs> that's funny. No, it's thought ram. <laughs> yeah, no, it's I I knew that. Anyway, uh, let's go ahead and do some picks. Lucas, do you have some picks for us? Oh, do I have a pick? So I just got a super awesome book that I just ordered off of Amazon. I can't wait for it to get here. It's called Professional ADO RDS Programming with ASP. Oh, my gosh. And, <laughs> oh, goodness. What a weekend. Everybody go and buy this book. The next Angular conference you go to, bring it and have our illustrious John Papa sign the cover. I've just made everyone's month. You're welcome. And that's my pick. <laughs> All right, Ward, what are your picks? Well, I'm going to pick another dead John Papa book then. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, I think he's got one on data in Silverlight 2. And uh, I think that that was a classic, and um, I'm picking that. All right, Joe, what are your picks? So I'm going to pick John's picture on the professional ADO 2.5 RDS programming with ASP 3.0. This is literally the most amazing yet sexy picture that I have ever seen. John, you are looking good, my friend. You all right. All right. Now, I have to say something now. <laughs> uh, so the whole world will know. When that picture was taken, we were asked if uh, rocks. It's a rocks book. They asked us to go to a studio and get pictures taken. So we did that. And the authors of these different books. 
And we did that. And while we were there, me being the weird guy that I am, I'm like, hey, let's do a bunch of funny looking poses. So we did. And I sent them the picture I wanted them to use. But little did I know, the studio sent them all the photos. And they decided not to choose the one that I gave them. And instead, they gave them one where I was literally sitting on a table, kind of giving a strange, weird look <laughs> to the camera. <laughs> and that's what ended up being an infamy. And now 10 years later, I get Lucas making fun of it. <laughs> we're, we're back to haunt you. Oh, my gosh. It, it's, it's just beautiful. You absolutely must drop what you're doing. Google this book or go to the show notes and check out that picture. It looks great. Buy it, just buy it for a dollar. Like, I mean, that's yes. what I did. The shipping was more right. than the book, but it's paperback from a buck 15. Yeah. So I, I asked them to take, we took a backside of that picture too, by the way, I asked them to put it on the back cover, but they wouldn't let us do it. Uh, <laughs> that's too funny. So I'd also like to uh, pick Zeit. I, I'm not even sure if I'm selling, saying that right. Is that how they, they say it? Is that how uh, Guillermo says it, pronounces it? It's Chuck? I, I don't remember. Yeah, so it's Z-E-I-T dot C-O. This is a new service. Uh, Guillermo Roche, who is one of the more prolific JavaScript bloggers and writes some amazing JavaScript blogs and is well-respected as being a very smart, good developer, has this awesome service. What's that? Sock.io. Yes, there we go. So anyway, this service is totally awesome. Let's say you're working with an Angular project, you got a node back into it, and you want to show somebody a problem or where you're at or something, and who wants to spend... 20 to minutes to an hour trying to figure out some hosting to throw it up. This is literally an NPM tool that you install, and all you type in is go, and then hit enter, and it takes your project in the current directory, throws it up on a website, installs a, the NPM modules immediately, and then gives you this public website you can use, and then if you want to take it to production, you can choose your own URL, but it assigns you out a unique URL that other people can go and check out your code. Super awesome, amazingly fast. Like they can get it deployed faster than you could npm install the project yourself out on the internet. Super cool little little pro product. So and service. So I'm gonna pick that. I also want to gonna pick a game that I've been playing, Overwatch. I picked this on the other podcast on the JavaScript Driver podcast. I gotta pick it again because it's so amazingly fun. Super fun. I'm pretty sure that in a couple of months I'll be picking some kind of gaming addiction recovery service. But for now. I'm picking Overwatch. Awesome game. All right. It looks like uh, Lucas and Pascal need to take off. Pascal, do you have any picks you want to throw in real quick? Yeah, yeah. So actually, I would like to take the book of John Papa too, but I think I was not on this planet yet when he wrote these books, so oh. I have to take something else. <laughs> oh, um, oh. oh. I'm Wait, sorry. This book? <laughs> so, Aren't like, the old man jokes directed at somebody else usually? Yeah, he so deserves them. He has hair in that picture too. It's that's another reason to buy the book. <laughs> so, so one pick I have is I started a project like a month ago called Five Things Angular, which is basically a mailing list where you get weekly updates on Five Things Angular. And these five things usually they focus on uh, the development of Angular, like the actual development. So we have like links to like pull requests and issues. If you're interested in the development of Angular two, then this mailing list gives you like every week updates on what's going on because it's super hard to keep track nowadays. It's, and very, good. it's very good. My f uh, second pick is actually something I've experienced together with Joe Eames in uh, Moab uh, after NGConf. Um, so I had this drink called Dr. Pepper, which I didn't know. And it's like super yummy. So Dr. Pepper is my second pick. 
That is the standby of programmers everywhere, and DP it stands for data processing as well as Dr. Pepper. So you're, <laughs> yeah, that's so what you true. drink when it's when the machine's out of Mountain Dew. <laughs> yeah. Oh, bring it back, John. Did we get your picks? Yeah, so I have two picks. One of them is a place called Nomad. It's at hellonomad.com. They make these nice little um, things that you can use for your iPhone, iPad, etc., or your Android device. One of them that I love is a uh, USB lightning dongle that you can put on your keychain. It's literally like an inch and a half long, and I use it all the time. It's fantastic for connecting like your laptop to your phone to charge it or, uh, or even in your car when you're just needing one of those wires. Uh, they also make chargers. They make you know the car charger stuff too. Uh, the other thing, my other pick, is my favorite one here today. It's Gilderoy Lockhart, who I just realized this is an actor, Kenneth Branagh, I believe is his name. He's in Harry Potter, the second movie, and he is Ward Bell's lookalike. If you look at the link that we put in here, this guy, I think Ward Bell is uh, moonlighting as an actor. Yeah, especially okay. if you go look at his old tech books that he wrote on .NET and stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Actually, I have that cape. So. You do. I know. And that's your yeah. hair. Oh no! Well, at least I. <laughs> All right. I'm, I'm also, really... also going to throw in there that if you click on John Papa's name on the book that Lucas recommended, I don't think he has an author page in there, so it just takes you to a search for John Papa, and the first two listings are the Tarot and the Tarot Book Two. So, well, if John's you... John's work on the Tarot is absolutely fundamental. <laughs> Uh, so if you're looking into your future, you've got to get his book on tarot card reading and have John tell your future. And we are completely off the reservation. <laughs> All right. I've got a couple of picks I'm going to throw out there really quickly. The first one is that you can do PowerPoint or keynote presentations, keynote, not PowerPoint. I guess you might be able to do PowerPoint. I haven't tried. Anyway, on the iPad. And when I was at NGConf, they were giving out these cube projectors, which are Really small. They're a couple inches square, cube, whatever. And they have a battery in them, so you don't even have to plug them in. And you can fit them in your bag when you go places and have to present. Uh, I actually wound up doing a presentation to about 50 to 75 Cub Scout leaders last week and was using slides. And I just popped that thing out of my bag, pointed it at the screen. It worked great. If you're going to do it on your iPad, you need a lightning cable to HDMI adapter, but they sell those, and they're not terribly expensive. So, yeah, I'm going to pick the adapter and the cube projector. And then, finally, I also have another pick that's a book pick. And this is something that I read a week ago, and it really, really impacted me. It's a book called Fully Alive by Ken Davis. Ken is a businessman from uh, Nashville, I think. And uh, anyway, the book just goes into how to be successful in life, not just be successful in business, and talks a lot about how to live fully alive and how most people go through life just kind of coasting and not really living. And he talks about all kinds of different areas of life and the kinds of things that you need to be doing in your life in order to live fully alive. And I think the advice is pretty good for just about anybody. Some of it's fairly specific, but most of it is just you know, getting you to the, that place where you light up and you live. So anyway, I'm going to pick that book. And half of our panel's gone, so I'm just going to go ahead and wrap the show. Thanks, everyone, for coming, and we'll catch you all next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Do you want to have conversations with the Adventures in Angular crew and their guests? Do you want to support the show? 
Now you can. Go to adventuresinangular.com slash forum and sign up today.